Welcome, everyone, once again to the Towards Wholeness podcast, where we are seeking to give you tools so that you can take steps toward wholeness in your faith, both in spirit and soul and body. Today, I'm really excited to have a guest who's a great academic and scholar and also a friend and member of the church that I'm privileged to lead in Seattle, Ben McFarland. Ben is the professor of biochemistry at Seattle Pacific University. And uh, he's a published author, uh, and his publications include a book entitled A World from Dust, How the Periodic Table Shaped Life. He has a chapter in a book entitled Faith Seeking Understanding, Essays in Memory of Paul Brand and Ralph Winter, and then an award lecture at Seattle Pacific University in 2010 entitled The Chemical Constraints on Creation. So Ben... Just from the titles of your books, I I would assume that you're brilliant. And because I know you, I know that my assumption is correct. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. Well, thanks, Richard. It's my pleasure to be here. Good. Uh, you have a YouTube channel that covers topics on science and faith. And recently, I've been so intrigued to watch the posts that you've been offering us about the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis, your observations have been thoughtful and articulate and helpful in the midst of kind of what I would describe as a world of noise where it's very difficult to discern what's true. So my first question to you is, how is science contributing to the thoughtful understanding of how to reopen the world, basically, and the economy? Yeah, it's um, a complicated question because it's a complicated world, right? You know, I, I, th- I like your talking about the white noise of the world that we're in right now. We have so much information and so many voices that are basically pummeling us from all sides. And one of the things that I've done from a very early age is I've liked to take things apart. It's one of the reasons why I like chemistry, because you can take things apart down to the atoms and then you can put those together again and like make a drug or a vaccine or something like that. And so when I first heard the news about this, I've had some training in immunology and I've also been, you know, going to Bethany since 1996, right? Before I was doctor, it's been a long time. And I wanted to find out what's really going on. I wanted to take this apart. And so the very first thing I noticed is that you can take the virus apart biochemically. And actually, on the inside of the virus, what it is essentially is it's a bunch of RNA. RNA is made up of four letters. And you can take those apart and you can read them like a book. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to see the RNA, how it's mutating. I wanted to see how different it was from other viruses. And I found a lot of things about it that fit with what we knew before. And I found that to be kind of comforting because we've seen coronaviruses before. This one is particularly nasty on a few fronts, but it's also, in the movies, you always have this thing like you've never seen it before. You know, um, what what are we going to do, you know? Right, right. But we've seen this before, and the virus has words inside it that we can read. Literally 30,000 letters. That's what makes up this virus. Biochemistry lets me take that apart and read it like a book. And what I found there, you know, we found the ways in which the virus is scary. It's very transmissible. But I also see the ways in which it's like other coronaviruses that we have seen before. And that gives me hope that as we endure through this, 
that we will be able to take it apart, you know? Right. So embedded in your answer a little bit as I listen to you is this confidence that scientists will be able to take it apart to the end that they might, would you say, build a vaccine? Would that be the desired goal here? Yeah. And um, my area is even a little more in the side of chemistry to develop a drug that will actually go into the virus or go into the life cycle of the virus and jam it up. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. So when Christians post things about the virus being spread by 5G cell towers and there's little lucifers that are getting into our blood through a proposed vaccine, as a scientist, how like how do you look at people of faith who are profoundly I would almost say anti-scientific and anti-objective. What's what's going on there? Why does that happen, particularly among people of faith? Well, I do understand a bit of it because, you know, we have 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of Christ. Mm -hmm. But it's also very easy to think that you're following the wisdom of Christ and to not be, right? Right. Um, and I think that there's a lot of mistrust that goes along, and there is a lot of evil in the world. So, you know, we shouldn't be trusting of everything. But I know several of the scientists through secondhand information in some cases, but I personally know their work, and I know their science, and I know something about who they are. And I do know that these scientists have integrity in their science. They're doing the best they can. Sometimes they get things wrong. But I don't have any reason to think that there is a huge conspiracy. And I don't think that evil takes those forms always. Evil's a lot sneakier than that, right? right. Um, the the uh, line between light and dark cuts through our own heart, you know, and things like that. So I think there's a lot of blaming that goes on. And I think a lot of Christians are like, well, we know that there's more than just atoms to the world. And so we know that science isn't the final word and science isn't the only thing. But at the same time, science is a good thing. And uh, science can be misused, but it can also be used really well. And I have a lot of hope in it being used well in this case. And so when those things come across, my first thought is to look at the, if you have like a person who's a scientist who's trying to say, my way of talking about the virus is different than everyone else, and it's right. right. I look at that person's previous science, and in the case of some of these scientists, I know that their previous work is bad, honestly. I've seen it a decade ago, and I know that they're, they haven't put out good science in the past. And so I immediately don't trust them when they're saying, trust me and don't trust all the rest of the scientists. As right. a scientist, I can evaluate their science independent of their own claims. And I can say that there is such a thing as good science and bad science. And that, of course, it can be applied wrong ways. And we have a lot of scientists who set themselves up as antagonistic to the church, as putting down people in the church and saying that basically belief in God is an illusion or a de delusion. Right. And the important thing is to say, okay, they're interpreting the science, they're using the science, and they're not using it right if they're saying things like that. And right. that's separate from the actual good gift of science that we have that gives us the hope of finding a drug or a vaccine that will work for all the people globally. So. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good word. I, I do think, to your point, 
Christians can be afraid that mm. science will lead to conclusions about faith that would be destructive to faith. And there are scientists with fame who, in my opinion, move beyond the realm of science to begin making declarations about God. So there are cases mm -hmm. where uh, scientific, and I put it in quotes, integrity leads to conclusions that diminish the reality of creator in the world. So I guess I wonder then if I'm talking to uh, a student perhaps or someone who is seeking to integrate faith and science in their worldview, what, what would be your answer to the question of how science contributes to our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of faith? Take me down that road a little bit because yeah. I think that's a question many people ask. Yeah, I do want to start off with the, the idea that these scientists are speaking out of their box, honestly, to talk about how religion is an illusion and things like that. That is an example of taking the good gift of science and putting it on too high of a pedestal. It's literally worshiping science too much. And science, the more you get into it, you do find things at the heart of science. There's Heisenberg's uncertainty. There's right. also the uh, Gerdell's incompleteness theorem, which is a mathematical theorem that math can never be complete. Oh, really? I didn't know about this theorem. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a huge thing. And actually, Actually, yeah, it's connected to all sorts of things. The fascinating thing is it's connected to how language works and how computers work. And oh, so wow. in that way, yeah, it's connected to the logos of the universe. There's all sorts of things. I always like, I like words. I probably <laughs> use too many. Um, and so, yeah, exactly. I, I see that you know, in all sorts of places. So there is this deep logos to the universe, this order and this ordering, and people can worship that. But I prefer to see even those laws as being secondary and not primary, because they're laws that were given by a lawgiver, they're words that were spoken by God, and the God is primary to them. Right. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of uh, what you're saying reminds me of a conversation I had on a plane one time. I was sitting, as it happened, with an astronomer, and as we began to engage in conversation and I found out his vocation, I asked him questions the entire flight for like two hours down to Southern California. And then as the plane was descending, he said, well, we've never talked about you. What do you do? <laughs> I said, well, I was a little bit embarrassed, actually. Uh, right. I said, well, you know, I'm a pastor and I was expecting a very antagonistic response. And his response warmed my heart. He said, oh, a pastor. He said, I wish I'd have known. I have just as many questions for you as you have for me. And then, then this is what he said. He said, science and faith need each other. Mm -hmm. does, that make, does that resonate with you in some way? It does. And it moves us beyond an idea of competition. Right. One, of the, one of the things about God is God is beyond our comprehension. And uh, we don't ever have a complete understanding of God. The way that we get a, an understanding of God is by looking at Christ. And so I think that we have a bunch of things going on that are beyond us and people have different reactions to them. The one thing that's really helped me recently is to realize that God as creator of the universe does not compete with God's own universe. God fills, he's everywhere, he sustains everything, and he does not necessarily displace the universe. He does not compete with the natural processes that come about. And so looking at the Bible, looking at the first couple of chapters, it's kind of a question of how do you take this language that is very non-scientific? It's not even English, right? So we're always translating it. Right. And how do you translate it into how God created? If you start from the idea that God created everything, including the laws that we take apart with science, then you can ask the question of, okay, how did God use those? 
And in in the case of natural laws, we can see that there is a consistency, or I'd even call it a faithfulness, to creation that goes back billions of years, in my opinion, and in my experience looking at the evidence. And when I look at that, I see an incredible faithfulness because I don't separate that from God's action. God spoke this into being, and there's many ways in which God continues to speak and in which the scientific laws, and by the way, even the scientific laws, the word laws sounds like it's something that even God can't break. No, God can do whatever God wants. Right. I like to think of them more as laws for us, but they're habits that God has given the universe. Yeah. And so yeah, right. they are they are not above God. And I think that we quickly idolize them because they're so amazing and so powerful. And we we take them and we put them on a pedestal above God, just like people would worship the sun because the sun is so powerful. Scientists will worship the laws and uh, we, we can't do that. They're flawed. They're broken. They're only habits, but they are amazing habits that we can build a whole bunch of stuff on top of. We just have to remember that they are gifts. You know, they're, um, we're building on a foundation that's given to us. So when you go to Genesis 1 and 2, because you referred to the first two chapters of the Bible, Mm -hmm. does your science inform your interpretation, your what we would call theologians hermeneutic, or does your hermeneutic constrain your science? Yeah, I spent way too long looking at the first couple chapters, and I went through, you know, there's a bunch of theories you can have uh, about, okay, is it really, where's the viewpoint of the observer, and how did this happen, and things like that. Right. One day I stepped back and sort of said to myself, where's Jesus in all this? Why am I worried so much about these first two chapters, which are very cool, and they have a lot to say? Mm -hmm. But then I found myself focusing too much on those two chapters, just like the people who focus too much on the scientific laws and exclude God's action. Right. And I was saying God's action in Christ. So, you know, Gospel of John ties it together, right? And he says that the Word was God and the Word was with God. Jesus was the Logos. And I started to say, oh, okay, what if I looked at this as Jesus being active in creation? All things were made through him. And that means all things were made through God's Word. What does that mean? And that's a different angle to look at it from. Yeah. Rather than trying to drill down to exactly how long was each day, you know, exactly why did this one word come in this list before this other word? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I I just found myself getting to the point where I was, I think I was idolizing the text a little bit too much. And I was forgetting about uh, God being active in Christ. I was putting all of God's action in the past, whereas I was seeing there's creation in Christ. Right. If Jesus was there making it and God was speaking God's word there, God also spoke God's word at the turn of the millennia, right? You know, in 33 AD, and God continues to speak God's word today. So there's a past, present, and even future aspect to it. And I just found myself getting sort of a distorted view. It's not that there's, there's a ton of good stuff there. But I just think that as a scientist, I can be sort of tempted into a little cul-de-sac where I am so worried about one chapter that I end up forgetting all the other books of the Bible. Well, what you're saying reminds me a little bit in a strange, non-scientific way of John Muir. You know, I'm an outdoor guy and a hiker, and one of my favorite authors is John Muir because he grew up in a Scottish Presbyterian home and then kind of walked away from that. But in his writings, he claimed to have these eyes 
wherein he could see literally Colossians 1.19, where Paul says, Christ is upholding and sustaining creation. Muir said, I see it. I see God at work sustaining the trees and sustaining the wildlife and building these beautiful ecosystems. And so he he, it wasn't animism in the sense that he was worshiping creation, but mm-hmm. he saw all of creation as pointing to the creator. And what you're saying kind of resonates with me that way, because then we fixate less on Genesis 1 and 2, and we recognize what God began there, God is still doing to this very day. God is active in creation. And the yeah, it's really huge to look at it that way. It doesn't exclude looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Right. You see God active there. And the important thing is that you see an arrow when you look at the world. And I think this actually ties back to the whole thing about COVID-19 and things like that. If we live in a creation that is spoken into existence by God and sustained by God, then it's a creation that is pointing somewhere and it's going somewhere. And we know that it's, in a sense, it's pointing to Christ and the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about. And that's something that you don't get from just looking at the world, from just looking at science. You have to get that from outside science. You have to get that from piecing it all together after you take it apart. Right. And, uh, and this even comes down to, you know, as I've looked, I said that I look at the the world and one of the first things as a chemist is I looked at it and I said, wow, all this evidence says that it's really old. Okay, so I'm going to have to think about how this fits with the Genesis 1 account. And then I came up with similar evidence that appears that during all that time that we've had a law or mechanism of natural selection that has produced a lot of different life forms, all the things that John Weir looked at. Right, exactly. Um, but uh, And then I was like, well, isn't that just a dead mechanism that doesn't do anything or go anywhere? And there's people that argue that when they look at it. But then I, as I've looked at it more and more through the eyes of chemistry and, you know, the eyes of faith, I actually think I see an arrow even at that level that's pointing somewhere to the universe. Now, this is a very controversial thing. There are some scientists that will say, uh, no, you're not right. And I actually wrote my book in a sense to engage with one of the most prominent of those that said there is no direction to the universe. And I'm like, well, actually, I think there is. And I think it comes from chemistry. And of course, I'd say that, right? Because I I love chemistry. But it really comes down to looking at a very complex situation, filtering through all the white noise, and saying there's a still small voice behind all of this that seems to be moving us in a direction. And the king of it all, the ascended lord of the universe, is Jesus himself, who is not recognized but is now exalted to the right hand of God the Father. I mean, it all fits together with orthodox theology. I love that integration that isn't antagonistic to science, but actually sees science as an arrow pointing to faith. Follow-up question that I've had asked of me regarding scientists that I can't answer because I'm not a scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, People have said to me, listen, how do these people who are scientists also claim faith when the central tenet of their belief system is untenable scientifically? And I'm talking about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. In other words, people say to me, I've never seen a dead cell resuscitate or come back to life, let alone come back to life in some quote unquote glorified form. And so I preach, you believe, others say for 2,000 years, the entire understanding of the universe has this resurrection of Jesus as a linchpin. And yet I go into the office on Monday as a scientist, 
and I've got a hat on that if worn solely would lead me to believe the resurrection never happened. Uh, how do you integrate those things? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's a lot of questions and probably the most important questions are outside of science. There are things you can't take apart. And I can't take apart or repeat the resurrection. It didn't happen. It happened thousands of years ago. And so I have to turn to history rather than the tools of science to specifically look at that event. It's outside of science. But there's lots of questions that are outside of science. You know, um, what's my calling? What am I, what should I do with my life? What job should I do? That's outside of science. And a lot of scientists struggle with it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, Who should I marry? Should I marry? Even the existential question, should I live or should I die? Is life worth it? Hmm. All of those questions are outside of science. And I think that if we fool ourselves and we think that science has the answer to those questions, we end up um, in a state of anxiety and not knowing because we end up with so many different things going on in our heads that I think that proves in itself that these questions are beyond science and aren't those the most important things. You know, I can repeat a viral culture of the COVID-19 virus. I can repeat that. I can grow it again. I can come up with a drug against it. That's something I can take apart. But I can't take apart or repeat my life. The choices that we make day to day, those are beyond science. I can contribute to them and I can look at little parts of it. But ultimately, I have to make a decision and I have to step out and say, I think that this is the direction of the universe. I think that this is what I'm called to do. And I think that this is what's really real. Is there just atoms and void? Or is there a personality, a gift giver that gave this to us? The interesting thing beyond that is scientists always come in on the equation of it's just atoms and void. That's been going on for 2000s of years. Epicurus and Lucretius, those Greek philosophers, and Paul spoke against it in right. a way at, uh, in Acts. So it's not a new question. It's not a new observation that things that are dead stay dead, that death is an enemy and that death has a sting. But the thing is the sting being taken away in Christ, that is saying that there's a deeper reality that the lawgiver doesn't have to play by the law's rules. You know, uh, God doesn't have to follow the dead stay dead rule. And God gives life. In reality, 33 AD Palestine, God actually gave life to Christ's body. And then Jesus showed through many historical proofs. And there's also intellectual proofs. There's also a lot of things in which the ways in which the resurrection is the whole source of the new thinking in the New Testament, the way that Paul built his theology on the idea of the cross and the resurrection and the fact of the Spirit actively implementing that in the lives of people, there, there's a real intellectual change that you can see going on. There's new virtues that happened. The church was built and sustained by that, and that was an act of new creation. So yeah, we can't scientifically go back and prove the resurrection, but we can prove that something really weird happened to change a lot of people and to produce the church, which has continued despite all of our issues and problems. The church has been sustained to this day through a strange source of life that honestly, I don't think is explainable scientifically. And that makes a ton of sense to me when I I teach about resurrection I look at historical evidence and intellectual evidence, the exact two things that you name there. And I go, yeah, I cannot prove this scientifically. And even if I were a scientist, I don't think I could prove it scientifically. But 
there's a weight of evidence there that I have to deal with. And this is frankly one of the reasons that I continue in the faith because I can't deny what has happened in history. It's there, it's shaped cultures. And it doesn't mean that the church is without blind spots. We, the church has failed many, many times. And yet, crystalline vision that Paul seemed to articulate that's so spacious and generous and eternal was rooted in the resurrection. And he wouldn't be saying those things were it not for the resurrection. So that resonates with me 100%. Yeah. And you said, and yet, and that reminded me, there's the old story about Galileo when he was in conflict with the church. And honestly, it was more a political conflict than a scientific conflict when he was in conflict with the church, but there was an element of science to it in that he said the earth moves. And when he was placed under house arrest for it and sort of forced to recant, then he muttered under his breath, and yet it moves. But I went, when you said that, and yet, it reminded me of that because it's kind of like, and yet it moves in the sense of the church continues to move and the church continues to give life and the living word of Jesus' own words and the power of the resurrection continues to this day in a very way that's very much like God. You know, uh, if Jesus came and was not recognized and Jesus decided to work through the word and through the example, um, through the power of the resurrection, giving life to our mortal bodies, as Paul says, all that is not ostentatious. It's not showy. It's not the way the empire does it. Right. But it's hidden. It continues. And basically, and yet it moves. I just think of applying that not to just the earth moving, but to the church continuing through history through a power that is not her own. It's beautiful. I Your and yet phrase reminds me of uh, an article I read many years ago by a journalist named Matthew Paris entitled Africa Needs God. Hmm. I'm paraphrasing, but his first paragraph was like this. I'm an atheist. I don't believe that God exists. And yet, literally, that's what he says. And yet, Africa needs God. And he goes on to talk about, to use our language from this morning, our non-verifiable, scientifically non-verifiable qualities that he sees among Christ followers in Africa. He says they have a joy. They have a curiosity. They have a fearlessness regarding death. They have a generosity, they have a compassion, they have a mercy, they have a, a, a desire for justice that I only see among people claiming Christ. That's amazing to me. Hmm. And I think the people who claim there is no God have a hard time dealing with that. Yeah. And I've been to Africa myself. And if you want to talk about science and experiencing that for myself, I have seen it. I've seen it in a place, in a country that was undergoing extreme turmoil. And by the way, um, it's Burundi. And now they're undergoing elections again, which caused the turmoil the last time. I was there. I heard gunshots. You know, I saw all the problems of that country. But I also have incredible stories of faith that were hidden underneath all of that, that really sustained me and gave me life literally in that exact context. So I can say God sustains God's church across the globe. And there's a trust that even when I am have to sit on my floor because I'm afraid that gunshots will come in the window, right? Right. There's, there was a case in Burundi where I saw that God sustained us and God was with us there. And he was there with my fellow believers who took care of me in ways that were just absolutely amazing, even though they didn't know me. I've seen that. 
And that's scientific verifiable evidence. I can go back to my journal entries. I can't repeat that time as an experiment, but I can say that my own life has been fitting with that and has seen that source of life. And I just want to mention, please pray for Burundi because they are undergoing the elections right now. They have just undergone round one and they're surprisingly going really well. I've been praying for them all the time. And so um, beneath all of this, um, I'd just like to ask everyone to consider Burundi in their prayers. Pray specifically for peace and wise leadership. Thank you, Ben. Very good word. And I encourage our listeners with you to stand with Burundi and to the value of prayer and believing that in a world where the laws that God has made as lawgiver are in effect, we also believe that God can intervene, and so we pray. I will just say in closing, Ben, your impact on students is tremendous. So thank you. Thank you for uh, your intellectual integrity and your compassion and your willingness to take students who, uh, frankly, come into your class sometimes, I know firsthand, afraid of science. And you've given them a spacious faith that I believe will be a gift for their whole lives. So thanks for that, Ben. Well, I appreciate it. It all comes together, you know, going to Bethany each Sunday and singing and uh, listening and uh, going through the, the word together. And it, it all does resonate. That's an organic chemistry term, but I like it a lot, the resonance between different things. And God made this world. And so it's been... It's also been seeing God work through Bethany and seeing God work through you, Richard, that we've seen that for decades now, you know, and it's just amazing. It's uh, the faith just increases decade by decade as we go through this together. Well, it's been a fun journey and I'm privileged to count you as friend and scholar. Uh, thank you for your insights today. Some of the things that uh, Ben has referred to will be uh, noted in the listener notes on the podcast. And I want to thank all of you for joining us. And we'll look forward to next time again on Towards Wholeness. Thanks very much. We'll see you next time.